of God's Word. If you have a Bible, go ahead and take that out and turn with me to the last book of the Old Testament. You're almost on the last page. We will get to the last page of the Old Testament, last chapter of the Old Testament. So we began all the way back in January in Genesis chapter 1, and here we are in Malachi. We'll start in Malachi chapter 3. We'll get to Malachi 4. The prophet Malachi and the word Malachi, uh, his name means my messenger. And so we believe he's both a a, a person, he's a real person that was alive, as well as who he is, that's that's who he is. He's God's messenger. And so Malachi, and we'll start um, chapter 3, verse 16. The the breakdown's a little odd. It even feels like it's going to be out of order. Like I'm not, it's not like the the clear way of just starting in 16 and work our way all the way through. And part of that reason is, is because they, um, well, they've, they've scrambled it up a little bit on us, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave that alone. It's just different than it is in the Hebrew Bible. But anyway, chapter um, three, verse 16, this is what the word of the Lord says. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I will make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. And Lord, as we come to understand and we believe, as it's declared in your word, that grass will wither, flowers are going to fade, but your word will stand forever. And Lord, may you this decree, may this word of warning for us, may it, may it be that. May your spirit draw near to us, Lord, as we talk about deep things and heavy things, as we talk about heaven and hell, and we talk about salvation and condemnation, Lord, even today, if you, by your great grace, if your spirit would grant someone to be saved, what a mighty and beautiful thing that would be. And Lord, we would ask you that you do that. Lord, we ask you that all of our souls would be laid bare before you as we consider these things that we we must consider because they're in your word. 
In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. And let me again, as Pastor Derek has already done, let me welcome you this morning uh, to uh, today's gathering. And as Derek said, whether you're joining us here um, especially those of you on the sides in person, we welcome you. Those of you in the middle that are trying to avoid the live stream, we welcome you um, as well. And it's just good to have you. Keep your Bibles out. Stay there in the book of in the book of Malachi. My grandfather always called him Malachi. He said he was the Italian prophet, but that's not true. But uh, keep your Bibles open there. We're gonna we're gonna walk through that text and. Gosh, it is so theologically dense and rich that we can't even get to everything on it. I want to also welcome those of you that um, are joining us on live stream. We'll say uh, good morning, especially to Ms., uh, Mr. Billy and Miss Jackie that are joining us, and Miss, uh, Miss Janie Duvall, good morning. Uh, we love you all. We miss you, as well as the others of you that are joining us. And so I'm just so thankful for those of you that have served us and continue to serve us well, that we're able to do that live stream and to put it out there. And we're thankful to God for this technology. I probably have said it from the pulpit, but I'm like, Paul, the apostle Paul would be jealous of the technology that we have. I mean, can you imagine Paul? He's like, at what point Paul's writing saying, hey, bring me the parchments because I need some more paper. I've run out of paper. And like for him to say like, wait a minute, I could have zoomed in right to, to Ephesus. I could have just sent him an email. Are you kidding me? Like you guys got it made. And so we were so thankful um, for that. Just a, a little bit of introduction. Um, last week we were in uh, the book of Nehemiah. And my grandfather would say, you know what Nehemiah's claim to fame is in the Bible? Don't say it. I know, I'm, I'm wasting time. Uh, you would say like, well, yeah, he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. You see, no, he was the shortest man in the Bible, Nehemiah. That's terrible. I gotta, uh, but I got to pay homage to my grandpa. So anyway, um, last week we looked at Nehemiah and we saw what we saw was we saw that even though the exile had ended, and the Israelites had returned, and, and they're Judeans, but the Jewish people, even though God's people had returned to Jerusalem, um, what we're, what we're going to see is they're still going to continue in sin. So even despite the exile being ended, even despite they've moved back into Jerusalem, despite the fact that the temple has been um, rebuilt, despite the fact, as we saw last week, the book of the law has been recovered and there's been a, a small revival has taken place. And if we kept reading in Ezra and in Nehemiah, what we would have seen is we would have seen the people have returned to sin, but the brand of their sin has changed just a little bit. That pre-exile, their brand of sin was just blatant idolatry. It was syncretism. We talked about that, where they were, they were incorporating into the worship of God, the true God, the God of the Bible. They're worshiping into, or they're incorporating into that, the worship of other pagan deities. And now their, their, their sin has changed a little bit. It's not as blatant idolatry, but now what we see happening is corrupt uh, religion. That's really what's happened is they're now, they're not, they now have a form of godliness they have a form of, of worship to the one true God. They have a, a form of keeping the law. But really what, they, what it really is, is really deep and it's really corrupt. What they've done really is they're still avoiding God. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but we just on the, front, on the front end of the sermon, let me just load it in the front by saying there are actually two ways that we can go about where we can live lives that, that avoid God. There are two types of people that can at the end of the day or at the end of their lives can say, you know what? I really don't need God. The first one would be the rebel. The person that's just, that's just forgets about God, that's living as if there is no God, whether it's the person that's just the, the true humanist, that's just, uh, you know, the one that's just living for the flesh and the hedonist that's living for the pleasures of this world, or whether it's the person that's a uh, 
that's an agnostic or an atheist that would say that there is no God. And in both of those cases, as Paul says in the book of Romans, they're living as if they're, they're a law unto themselves. They don't need God's law. They don't need God's rules. They don't need God's statutes because they're a law unto themselves. They're the ones who determine right from wrong. It's rebellion. And that's what we see in the Garden of Eden. We see Adam and Eve saying, we're going to make our own laws. We're going to make our own rules. We're going to be the ultimate determiners of right and wrong. And so they're rebelling from God. And we see that fast forward to today. We still see that in our society. So one way is in rebellion, but there's a second way in which you can avoid God. And that's in religion. That's in a system, a, a way in which at the end of that system, you work the system, but at the end of that system, it leaves you with a righteousness unto your own. That you can do certain acts, you can say certain prayers, you can you know, recite certain things, you can uh, undergo certain practices, right? Baptism or take the Lord's Supper, you can do these certain things. And at the end of it, you neither need God because you, by your performance, you too have have achieved God's righteousness. And that's kind of the, the, the veer that the Israelites have taken. They've moved out of this blatant idolatry, out of this rebellion, out of being their own gods in that way. But now they've moved over and now they've created a corrupt system that exalts man and exalts self, a broken religious system that ultimately tramples on the poor it celebrates and fosters injustice. It divides the people. It leads to self-righteousness rather than humbleness. And God is writing to Malachi to say, knock it off. The book of Malachi is a heavy and strong book as you would think that it would. As you would rightly think, like it's gonna be heavy. It's gonna be hard. Someday we may preach through the book of Malachi and it's gonna be a tough series for us to get through, but I think it would be a good word for us and a good word for our culture as well. And in Malachi, what, what God is doing is God is bringing arguments and indictments against Israel, against this corrupt religious system. He's making claims and then the people will counter claims and God will ask questions of the people. God will make statements like, God will say, you are, you are robbing me. I mean, what a thought that, that you could live a life in such a way that God would declare of your life that you could have religious practices and be trying to be a good person and trying to do all these things. But at the end of that, God would say, you're robbing me. And then they say, but God, how have we robbed you? And then God will say, in your tithes and in your offerings, you're robbing me. They doubt God's, uh, he, in throughout Malachi, there's kind of six of these indictments that he makes. And I'm gonna quickly list them because I think they're good for us because I think it's our natural tendency for many of us uh, who call the Point Community Church. It's our natural, it could be our natural tendency to gravitate towards, towards self-righteousness and, and towards trying to make ourselves right by our religious practices. That I know many of us, we kind of grew up in church and many of us, we grew up in legalistic churches, churches that said, hey, do this and say that and don't do these kinds of things. And in the end, you know, Jesus will give you two thumbs up and you'll live forever with him. And that's just simply not true. There is no salvation apart from a salvation of, in Jesus. We are saved by good works by Jesus's good work on the cross that he did for us and Jesus's and the father's great work that he did in a tomb in his resurrection. That's the good work that ultimately saves us. Now we've been saved for good works, but we've been saved by, by Jesus and by Jesus alone. And that, 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 those truths, they lead us to humility and they lead us to gratitude and not to boast in ourselves. 
We walk away not saying, oh, how, look how great I am. Look at, my, look at my deeds and look at my works and look at what kind of person that I am. We leave this, leave this place saying, oh, what a wretch that I am, but what a great savior that we serve. It really leads us to, to trust in Christ. And so they doubt the love and goodness of God. They despise and dishonor God. They defile his temple through uncostly, through uncostly sacrifices. They start offering a sacrifice, spoiled meat and lame animals, right? A blind, like literally he talks about, you offer up a blind lamb to me. What good's a blind lamb? That's what he's saying. But I think that's a good word for us because oftentimes we give our worst. We give the worst of our time to God. We give the worst of our, our money. If there's anything left over, then we'll give. Then we'll care about how, after I've spent as much as I can possibly spend on me, if there's anything left over at the end of the month, then I'll see what's left over and then I'll try to, to give that little bit to the church and do my part. We live lives like that. We live lives where, where, where we divided out our life and it's not all God's and it doesn't all belong to him. Every penny that you have and every moment that you have ultimately belongs to God and that's the way we are to live our lives. They care nothing about God's covenant. It's evidenced in the ease in which they divorce their wives. Number four, they're questioning God's justice. Number five, as I talked about, they're negligent in giving tithes and giving offerings. They're robbing God. And number six, they're complaining rather than serving God. And that builds up this kind of corrupt religion. It may not be so of us. And we be the true followers of Jesus and allowing Jesus to change us and to transform us. But those are the arguments that are being laid out. And at the end, God kind of gives his concluding remarks. This is God saying, I get the final say. Like this is almost like a, a judge and jury type of situation, but I take it back. This is kind of a, a judge and they are on trial situation. There's really no jury. Ultimately, God doesn't need to appeal to man or anybody else. He appeals to himself and to how he has revealed himself to people. But at the end of this, what God says is I get the final word. And so God gives a final word to the remnant, to the righteous, to those who really love him. And he gives a final word here, closing out the Old Testament. He gives a final word also to the wicked. And that's what we have in this text. What we see in this text is we see one day, this is kind of an outline. We see one day, we've seen two groups of people. And these people are divided by their attitudes by the responses to God. And so we see two attitudes. We too see two sources of light. And we see two prophets at the end. May or may not get to that last one, but the first thing we see is we see one day and it's called the day of the Lord. Look with me down into chapter four, verse one, and we'll bump back up into three, but four, one, it just says this, for behold, the day is coming, Malachi writes. Now, this day that he's talking about here is nothing new with Malachi. In fact, as, as we studied the prophets, it's come up when we began the prophets with the prophet of Amos and Pastor Sean preached, he talked about the day of the Lord in that. As the men in the group, as we on September 14th, as we gather together around God's word in the book of the 12, which is the 12, uh, the 12 prophets, as we gather around the book or the 12 minor prophets, we gather around that, that'll be a constant theme that will be coming up. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And whenever Malachi or Amos or any of the other prophets, when they talk about the day of the Lord, they're still talking about a day that is yet to come. 
They're talking about the, the, the day um, in the end, the day of judgment, the final day. That's what they're talking about in this. They're talking about the, the judgment day that is to come. It's something that is still coming. But here, even as Malachi describes it, he describes it in verse number five, saying it is a great and it is an awesome day of the Lord. Now, those of you in the room that are Gen Xers like me, like awesome doesn't always mean awesome, right? Like we use awesome, man, that's awesome. As in like, that's awesome. That's really good. That's a positive thing. But as the Bible uses awesome, it just means something that, is, that strikes awe, something that makes you, you stand with your mouth gaping open as you see it. It doesn't necessarily mean it's positive. It doesn't necessarily mean it's negative. And it's saying that this day that's coming, it will be a great and awesome day. On that day, God will get the final word. On this day that is to come, this day of judgment, when God will judge all of humanity, ultimately God will be getting the final word. And on that day, there will be two groups of people, the righteous and the unrighteous, the righteous and the wicked, as they are called here in Malachi 4, the faithful and the faithless, the believer and the unbeliever. And notice that there are only two options. There's not a third middle ground that either you are a believer, a saved individual, or you are unsaved. You are wicked. You are arrogant. You are an evildoer. And that is it. Jesus will speak of this day as well. When Jesus comes, Jesus will speak of the day of the Lord as a day of judgment. And Jesus will say he will be the judge on that day. And he will separate all of humanity into one of two categories, either the sheep or the goats. And that's it. It's not some cross thing of a kind of looks like a sheep, but acts like a goat that doesn't exist. It's what Jesus is saying. He will, he will divide either the, the wheats from the tare. Out from the outside, it may look both the same, but there is, a, there is a group of people that produce fruit for God, that serve God, that love God. And then there are those that are fruitless. That's what he's pointing at. It's the whole distinction that he's made. In fact, we see this in verse number 18, that there is a distinction. Notice this is what God says through Malachi. Then once more, then once more, he says, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. On the day of judgment, he says, once more, you're going to see this distinction being made as God separates and judges humanity. You will see it. But notice he says once more as if like, wait a minute, have we already seen it? If we're seeing it once more, then when did we see it and how did we see it? And that's really what it, uh, Malachi's getting at there. He's saying here that, yes, you will see it. There are indicators as to who are the righteous and who are the wicked. And it shows up in our attitudes and our responses. It's, it's as if you're driving down the road and you come up to a sign and that sign says road closed ahead and you keep going. And then there's a sign that's flashing and blinking and that sign says bridge out ahead and you keep driving and going and then you come up on a barricade and you bust through on that barricade and then your car crashes and careens and bursts into flame. And you would say, I didn't know. No, you, you knew. There were indicators and there were signs all the way down before you reached the point of no return. And in the same way Malachi is saying this, that there is a day coming, a day of judgment coming. And as you're approaching it, there are signs and there are indicators so that you may repent, so that you may stop the car, put it in reverse, do your three-point turnaround and head in the other direction. That's what he's saying. 
There comes a time when there is the point of no return, but the distinction is being made. It's being made right now. It's made today in the life that you live. If you're true unto yourself, then you already know these things. And how, do, how can we know these things? Well, Malachi helps us. Malachi says, hey, don't be a law unto yourself, but here, let me help you. The New Testament writers, Paul, Peter, they'll write as well. Jesus will write as well in ways that would help you to know, well, which one am I? Am I a sheep or am I a goat? Am I a weed or am I a tear? Do I belong to the wicked or do I belong to the righteous? Well, let me help you, Malachi says. Here's two attitudes. You have the attitude of the wicked and you have the attitude of the righteous. The attitude of the wicked looks like this. For behold, the day is coming. It's burning like an oven when all the arrogant, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming. That the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it leave neither it leave them neither root nor branch. This is what he's saying here: that those who are marked by arrogance are the evildoers. He's talking about an attitude about God and an attitude about self. He's talking about an attitude that reveals itself in action. Those who are arrogant, their actions are, are evil. But he doesn't just leave it with evil because let's just be honest. If I was to say, hey, show, give me a show of hands of those of you that recognize that your actions are evil. Have you ever met someone that would admit to being evil? Maybe Charles Manson, I don't know. I've never met a person. Hey, I'm an evil person. That we all because of self-righteousness, that we all want to claim to be good. Like we all want to say, no, I'm a good guy. And we look horizontally at those around us in order to justify our bad behavior or our good behavior and all those things. And God's not looking at any of those things. He's looking at his righteous decree, which is perfection. And we all, as Paul will say in Romans, we all fall short of the sin. We all fall short of the sin uh, and sin ben, um, underneath God and sin before God. That the truth is, when it comes to sin, that we don't sin in ignorance, but we sin in arrogance. That the reason why we sin isn't due to our ignorance of not knowing. That most of us, we have been given a, a conscience. And many of the times we do things that go even against that conscience. On top of that conscience, we have God's revealed law and we have God's revealed word and we, we know what to do. We know how, what, we're, what we are to do. We know how, that how we are to live. And so we don't, we don't sin in, in ignorance, but we sin in arrogance. And that's what happens in, the, that's what happens in Genesis. That's what, that's what Adam and Eve are doing. It's a declaration of of cosmic treason. It's a declaration of pride. It's a declaration of arrogance. They knew what the law was. They knew what they, what they were to do and what they were not supposed to do, and yet they, they didn't care. And in the same way, if you peel back your sin and my sin, if we keep peeling it back far enough, what we will reveal is we will reveal arrogance in us. And the truth is, most of us, we won't call it arrogance, but it is. 
We may call it tolerance. We may call it pluralism. We may talk it enlightened living. We may talk it spirituality. We may say, I'm just trying to be true to myself. We may call it all of these other things, but the truth is it's rebellion and it's arrogance. But there's a contrast to arrogant type of living. An arrogant living where you're saying, no, I'll be my own God. No, I'll call right and wrong. No, I'll live however I want to live. No, I know what God's word declares. I know that it tells me not to do these things, but I don't care. I'm going to do this anyway. See, arrogance. Whew, I've been so guilty of that. But the contrast to arrogance is a fear of God's name. Then when the Bible speaks about a fear of God's name, what it's talking about there is not talking about just being afraid, although that should come as well because he is great and he is awesome as well. But what it's talking about here is a reverence to God. It's talking about a humility in heart. It's talking about a lowly attitude, a lowly posture of self, a lowly thought that, that, that leads us to, to a life of submission, a life of saying, not by my will, Lord, do I want to live, but by your will do I want to live my life. Lord, I want to I relegate the control of my life to you, Lord. You lead me. You guide me, Lord. Lord, search out my heart and see if there's any way of offense in me. And if there is, Lord, may I repent of those things and may I turn from them that I may live for you. That's what we're talking about. That's what it means to fear the Lord. What we see here is a description of those who fear the Lord, starting in verse number 16. Chapter 3, verse 16, look at this with me. It says, then those who feared the Lord, they spoke with one another and the Lord paid attention and he heard them. Now, just stop for just a second. Like, have you ever been like eavesdropping on a conversation? Like, you'd be, be honest, be honest. We're, you know, we're in church. J Jesus sees you. He sees you whether you're in church or not. But anyway, be honest. Have you ever, and then all of a sudden you hear them talking about something that interests you, like guns, you know, like fishing, right? Like right now, cars. You hear somebody talk about something that interests you, food, and your ears Shoes and handbags, you hear that, right? And it interests you and your ears perk up and you listen a little harder, a little more intently. Like this is what Malachi is saying, that the remnant, the righteous, the people that fear God, they get together and they start talking to one another. And as they're talking to one another, it, it interests God. God perks up his ears and he, and he hears, he pays attention. He's listening to them and he heard them. And then he says, and then God had a book of remembrance was written before him those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now, listen, this book of remembrance, man, we could spend all day on that. We, we, we actually could, no doubt, spend all day on that, but, we, but we, we, don't, we don't have time. But this much we can say, this much we can say is that people who fear the Lord, they love to talk about God and the things of God. That's what that means that these people that come together and as they, they start talking about things, they're talking about the things that interest God and God listens into their conversation. They're talking about God and the things of God. The people who fear the name of God, they love the word of God. I think that's what the scroll of remembrance is that's written. I think it's God declaring that he will superintend over his Bible. And that's what the Bible is. It's a divine gift, a divine gift of scripture. It points us to the past, God, the past uh, promises of God. They inspire faithfulness in us, give us a hope for the future. I think that's what the book of remembrance is. But we see this, they, they get together and they now have this scroll that they're reading and it's, 
It's, it's inciting a faithfulness to God and a love for God. People who fear the name of the Lord, they love to serve God. They see all of their life as service to God, to live for God and for God's glory and not their own. People who fear God, they're marked by humility and not arrogance. Submitted to God and his law and don't live in rebellion. They have a reverence for God, not apathy or hostility for God or the things of God. And see, these are the indicators that Malachi is talking about. This is how you know whether you're in the faith or not in the faith. It's not that we do these things perfectly. Absolutely not. None of us do these things perfectly. But what's your desire? What do you desire? What do you want? What do you long for? What interests you? What do you enjoy? Is is your delight found in God and in the things of God and obeying God and in doing God's will and seeing God glorified in your life? Or is your life marked by you doing your own thing and hoping God somehow blesses it? Or in the end that you just don't end up in hell. In fact, that's where we're going next. I mean, this matters. This has eternal consequences to it because look at what Malachi says. For behold, a day is coming. It's burning like an oven. He's gonna describe on that day, he's gonna describe two lights, two, two destinations, two effects here. The first one is an oven. When all of the arrogant, they're going to be placed inside of the oven. That's what he's saying. They're going to be like stubble. The day that is coming shall set them, the arrogant, ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So in every home during this time, there would have been a, an oven outside, you know? Like you and I, like we've got a, most of us got a gas grill. You turn on, go over, you, you turn on the gas and you press the igniter and... And then it lights, so you got to get the lighter and you got to do it or you do your charcoal, whatever it is. And this day they would have done, majority of their cooking would have been done outside in these brick type ovens with their dome, you know, shape. And what they would have to do is they'd have to build a fire. So somebody in the family would have to go outside and they would gather sticks and stubble in order to use it for kindling, in order to put it in the fire, in order to light it. That was an everyday occurrence of gathering stubble, lighting a fire, building a fire. If we want to eat, we got to have a fire. No microwave, right? This is pre-1970s, before microwave. None of that right now. we got to build a fire if we're going to have this. And what God is saying here is the wicked, the arrogant, those who ultimately care nothing about me or about my things, those who ultimately refuse to bow their knee to surrender their will to my will, to my law, then you, he says, on the day of judgment, I will gather you up and you will be just like the stubble. And when God talks about fire here, he's talking about God's wrath burning against them, the just judge Almighty God's wrath burning for eternity against those who do wickedness and do, who, and do evil. We live in a time and in a culture when it's so unpopular to talk about hell. We live in a time and a culture where everybody believes in heaven and no one believes in hell. Everybody believes that everyone goes to heaven. Anytime anyone dies, regardless of how they died, when they died, their state of their the soul, when they die, what we say is, well, we know that they're in a better place. And it just simply is untrue. This isn't an Old Testament truth that gets wiped out by Jesus. No one in the Bible will speak more about heaven and about hell than Jesus Christ himself. 
It's a warning to us of the truth of the eternal consequences when you try to be your own God and in trying to be your own God and living for yourself and living as a law unto yourself, caring nothing about God or the things of God, then that will have consequences and the consequences will be eternal consequences. It's what he's speaking of here. It's what he's talking about. The truth is it takes more than just death in order for you to go to a better place. It takes Jesus's death in your place for you to go to a better place. It takes your full faith and belief in Christ's death that covers all of your sin and all of your wickedness. As I say so often, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it frees us to be honest about our arrogance and about our rebellion and about the times that we fall short from the glory of God. The true children of God, we are those who are painfully aware of our shortcomings before God. We're painfully aware of our own arrogance, but it's not that we try harder and do better. It's at the end of our days, at the end of moments like this, where we cling to the cross and cling to Christ in his perfection and in his perfect work. We look to God's wrath and we see Jesus is the one who will be placed in the oven for us. Jesus is the one who will go before God's wrath so that I don't have to stand in God's wrath and it does a work in us that ultimately changes us. I know it's not popular. I know some would say it's unloving, but it's because I love you that I say these things to you. I'm not asking you if you're a good person. We've already covered that. Everyone thinks that they're a good person. I'm not saying are you moral versus immoral. What I'm saying to you is the same thing that Jesus will say to Nicodemus in John chapter three. A very moral man, a very religious man, and Jesus will look him in the eye in the night and he will say, Nicodemus, unless a person is born again, they cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. They will never see the kingdom of God. And that's the same question Malachi is asking us. And it's the same question I'm asking you. Have you been born again? Born again means it's the doctrine of regeneration. It means that you've been made new. It's where God removes the heart of stone that's in you and places in you a heart of flesh. The heart of stone is something hard. It doesn't move. It doesn't give. It doesn't bend. It doesn't cry. It doesn't bleed. It doesn't turn. It's set and it's fixed. But a heart of flesh is something that beats and it bleeds. It's moved and it cares and has concern. I'm asking you, I'm asking you, have you been born again? Has the Spirit of God regenerated you and made you new? As Paul says in the book of Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins and once you used to walk, but then by God's mercy, God does a work and by his grace, he makes you alive and quickens you and gives you new life and gives you new appetites, new cares and new concerns where you desire the things of God. You care about the things of God. Your, your speech, when you talk to other people, there's now God is, is laced into those things. You delight in talking about God and Bible study and opening up God's word and reading his word and singing songs to him. I'm not saying you become a religious zealot or a religious fruitcake, but I'm saying ultimately in your heart of hearts, you love the Lord. You esteem him. You want to serve him. You want to glorify him. You care ultimately about the fame of Jesus Christ more than you care about anything else in your life. Again, not perfectly. 
but persistently. There may be seasons where you cool off and you go, oh, am I even saved? And then God, by his great grace, he stirs your affections anew and afresh and you press in and you care more and more and more and you read more, study more, press in more. That's the contrast happening here. There's two lights. There's an oven. All the stubble would be burned. But look, there's also a second light in chapter four, verse two. But for you who fear my name, The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The second light is the sun. He calls it the sun of righteousness. And he says the sun is going to rise with healing in its wings. So just picture this with me. It's dark. Right? Have, you ever, have you ever been caught out at dark? Like really dark, cold? You just think like, gosh, it's daylight ever going to be here? I mean, I remember as a kid, we go camping sometimes as Boy Scouts, and I get so scared out there camping. One time I camped out with a buddy of mine, and we decided we were going to go coyote hunting. We took, some, uh, we took this, this, this uh, tape, we set speakers outside, and it played this, like, it was, it, 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 they didn't hurt the rabbit, but they got the sound of a, of a wounded rabbit, and it freaked me out, and I was so scared, but I couldn't tell my buddy, you know, I was like a 17-year-old guy sitting there with a gun. I couldn't tell my buddy I was scared, and I wouldn't go back, and I just felt like this night is never going to end. It is so pitch dark, and I'm so scared, and I'm cold, and all I want to do is go home, and that's, etern- that's, that's, that's existence as we know it right now, Christians. See, the day of judgment for those who don't know Jesus, that will be their absolute worst day with worst days to come. But the day of judgment for those of us who know Jesus, that will be our best day with better and better days to come. And what he says here is just like the night when you're cold and you're in the dark and then all of a sudden the sun starts rising up over the horizon and and the wings is poetic ways of meaning the beams of light shining from it. It's like whenever we are a kid or a kid draws the sun, they never just draw a circle, but what they do, they do the rays coming off of the sun and that's what the wings are. It's a poetic way that that the sun is gonna rise and as the rays come across, there's healing in the rays. It's like he's got a word for COVID-19. Maybe it is in the sun and UV rays, right? There's It's coming and there's healing in those. He says, those of you who believe in me, you're gonna go out leaping like calves from the stall like an animal that's been pinned up in a barn and all of a sudden you burst open the barn doors and it goes running and it it goes jumping out of it. The sun bringing healing. Here's Here's a point we gotta make. Who needs healing? The sick. Sick people need healing. Healthy people don't need to be healed. It's a declaration that those who are found to be righteous, those who fear the name of the Lord, believers, that we're not righteous, we're not good, we're not well on our own accord. It isn't the nature of our goodness that has made us right, but we must look to the sun, the sun of righteousness who's gonna rise. We must let those wings, let those rays wash over us and cleanse us and free us from defilement. And the effect of that is you go bursting loose For the believer, there's freedom and there's joy when the Lord returns. No more death. No more cancer. No more chemotherapy. No more face mask. I mean, can we say amen to that, please? 
No more social distancing. No more bankruptcy. All of the former things, he says in the book of Revelation, will pass away. And behold, Jesus is making all things new. What am I going to do on the day of judgment when I see Jesus face to face? Well, you're going to, it sounds like you're going to jump around and dance and kick up your heels like a calf that's been set loose out of its stall. Some of you, it's been a long time since you kicked up your heels. The day's coming, you're going to get to kick up your heels. Get to kick up your heels. Oh my. It ends with two prophets. Quickly. Verse number four, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, he says, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. I can't even get to that. Lest I come and I strike the land with utter destruction. He's telling them their posture, the righteous remnant, the godly, that your posture is twofold. You're looking behind you, he's saying, at Moses and the law, and you're looking forward to a day that is yet to come for Elijah. Remember, look behind you, the Moses and the law, may that be your foundation. But also you're looking forward, you're looking forward for Elijah. And some of you go like, hold on a minute, time out. I know we've been skipping around a little bit. We've been following the storyline of the Bible. Like, didn't we cover Elijah like a month and a half ago? And yes, we did cover Elijah. At this point, Elijah is no longer on the earth. The ministry of Elijah has already come and it's already come and gone. And now in Malachi, Malachi is pointing forward to a new Elijah that is coming. He's pointing forward to a man who is going to come that will be like Elijah. See, next week's the intertestamental period. So if you have your Bibles, you can see like they did this for us. Like if you turn your page over, here's next week's sermon. I'll give you a preview of next week's sermon. Four hundred years of silence. Malachi will end. And then there will be 400 years of prophetic silence. And then Elijah comes. A man in the ministry, a prophet, the last Old Testament prophet, I believe, maybe the only New Testament prophet, but a man by the name of John the Baptist will come. And John the Baptist will begin preaching repentance. He'll be preaching repentance for the rebel and for repentance to the religious. And then there'll be another man that will show up and John the Baptist will see that man and he'll say, behold, the son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John the Baptist is the one that will pave the way. To hear what he's saying is, I want you to look behind you. I want you to remember Moses, but I want to look forward that Elijah is coming. And when Elijah comes, then the Messiah comes. Elijah and Moses will show up in the New Testament. They'll show up in the Gospels. They'll show up on a day when Jesus will gather a few of his closest disciples. He will take them onto a mountaintop with him. And then Jesus will, for whatever reason, to glorify himself, he'll kind of pull back the the curtain, if you will, and he'll allow them to see Jesus in his glory. And on that moment, in that moment, on that day, 
Moses and Elijah will appear with Jesus. Voice from heaven will come and declare who Jesus is. And in the same way, you and I, as we're looking, we're remembering Moses. We're remembering our foundation. Our foundation is found in Moses and his prophetic writings. It's found in the law as to how we are to live in a way that pleases God. And ultimately, we're looking forward to Elijah. It puts us also in a precarious position where we're looking to the man in the middle who is Jesus, the Messiah, the one who comes in his first coming in order to take away the sins of the world. That is who Jesus is. John the Baptist will be the forerunner for Christ, but it is in Christ. Christ is the door that will be flung open for all of us to repent and to believe in and to receive spiritual healing. But that healing comes through Jesus's own suffering. As I've already said, Jesus will be burned in the oven of God's wrath on the cross for our iniquity. That Jesus will be crushed underfoot for our restoration. That as uh, Malachi 3.17, God declares us there. He calls those the righteous remnant. He says, you will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In that day, I will make my treasured possessions and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. We are God's treasured possessions because we have been purchased. Jesus will spend his life. He will spend his blood in order to purchase for himself a people, a people who are his treasured possession. That Jesus is the son on whom the father did not show compassion, even though that son served him faithfully, but he sent him to the cross to suffer and to die in our place. So you and I, though, the rebellious and the insubordination, that you and I might receive adoption as God's sons through his sacrifice. And the promise that Malachi makes is so true. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. And his promise is this, that no one who serves God loses. No one honors the Lord and is forgotten or lost. And in the same way, no one ultimately tests God and escapes. Those who mock the gospel, spurn the grace and love of God, you will go to utter destruction. But those who trust in the Lord, you and I, we will receive eternal life. We will receive wholeness. We will receive healing. Speed the day, Lord. Jesus, thank you for your word. It is the scroll of remembrance that reminds us of your faithfulness and your justice of your mercy and your wrath, of the gift of your grace that was given in your son, Jesus. And Lord, may we leave here today with our affections for you more stirred as we think about your loving sacrifice as we enter into a time where we can reflect on our lives and as we enter into a time as we reflect on our lives that we take the Lord's Supper we remember in a pointed way, we remember your body that was broken for us, your blood that was shed for us, that by your stripes, we are healed. As we remember that, may we be transformed. May all the places of apathy and coldness melt under the wings of the son of righteousness. May our affections for you and for your will and for your ways 
for the things that please you and for your fame and for your glory, may they be stirred by you. May we, by faith, may we fan into flame the spirit that's been given to us. In your name we pray, amen.